Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome back to the New European Podcast. My name is Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European. If you enjoy what we do, there's really no better way to support us than by subscribing. And to make that decision easier, here's a fantastic offer for podcast listeners. New subscribers to the New European can get a year's digital subscription for just a pound a week, or you can buy a year's subscription to our print and digital package for just two pounds a week. For that, you get unlimited digital access and our award-winning newspaper will be delivered to your door every week for a year. To take advantage of this exclusive offer and to join our growing community of avid readers, you can subscribe here, theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. That's theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Please do it. This week on the New European Podcast, a desperate choice we'll be facing soon that isn't Truss or Sunak. Yes, it's the small matter of heating or eating as the country braces for the impact of the looming asteroid that is rocketed fuel bills, all while the next Prime Minister witters on about her wars on the woke and the unions and lefty councils. This is the UK's version of Don't Look Up, with Martin Lewis as Leonardo DiCaprio and Liz Truss as Meryl Streep. And soon, all our money will have departed as the new Iron Lady leads us through a series of unfortunate events until we all cry, Mamma Mia! Uh, But not Mamma Mia, here we go again. Meryl is dead in that one. Spoilers. These dark times call for radical measures, so I'll be joined by the new European's Paul Mason, who will take us through a plan for ending the crisis and turning the country around. That is coming up. And in time-honoured fashion, we will be putting more malevolent ministers, bogus backbenchers, and, of course, uh, Anne Widdicombe, into the Hall of Shame. But first, to lighten the mood somewhat, the Edinburgh Fringe is back. And we asked listeners of this podcast, if Liz Truss had a show at the Edinburgh Fringe, what would Liz Truss's show would be called? Anne Pank says Liz Truss's Edinburgh show would be called The Curious Incidents of the Dope at the Right Time, A Story of Failing Up. Peter Warren, who clearly remembers Phil Linnett, says Thick Lizzie, Live and Dangerous. Gareth Hunt, probably not that one, says she should call her show Port Markets in China. That way, at least one person would be excited about it opening. Elizabeth Amnigard says The Porky Market. Carrie Smith says Liz Truss's Edinburgh show would be called I Am a Disgrace. 
Martin Hall says it should be called A Guide to Bree Market Economics. Mark Neary says One Woman, No Clue. Albert Waterhouse says Margaret Thatcher, The Cardboard Cutout Years. Patrick Moore, probably not that one, says Never Trust a Tory. Vincent Offord says Liz Truss's Edinburgh show would be called It's the 1979 Show, featuring your old favourites, personal responsibility and tax cuts for the wealthy. Pamela Roberts says Liz Truss's Edinburgh show should be called Busy Lizzie in a tizzy, feeling dizzy because she's grisly. Caroline Sage says, does my trust look thick in this? Terry Kelly says, in Armageddon we trust. Colin Patricia Cowling, clearly a prog rock fan, says, thick as a brick, the dark side of the loom. Margaret May says, would I lie to you? Brackets, yes. David Marshall says, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Barney Allen says the title of Liz Truss's show would change every day depending on who she thinks she needs to impress. Bill Robertson says Liz Truss's Edinburgh show would be called A Journey Across My Mind in Five Seconds. Dina Draycott says Liz Truss's show should be called Vacancies in the Cerebral Cortex, a live review through interpretive dance. I would love to see that. And Snickers Snickers says Liz Truss's Edinburgh show should be called The Ladies Not for Turning, My Life as an Anti-Brexit Lib Dem. Rudy Conrath says Remain Today, Leave Tomorrow, brackets, My Brexit Years. And Do the Right Things, just quite a few. Breach of Trust, The Nationalist Trust, Piss Pork Markets and Cheese Always a Woman to Me. Luke Fictitious, great name Luke, says Liz Truss's Edinburgh show should be called The Shit Show. And Simon Marr says, I don't know what Liz Truss's Edinburgh show would be called, but I do know that her first words in it would be, Hello Glasgow! Now, let's turn our attention, because Liz Truss's attention is definitely not on it, to the crisis that we can see coming, the rise in the energy price cap, which will leave some of us with a choice of heating or eating. Let's bring in new European columnist Paul Mason, who has proposed radical ways of dealing with this and reshaping our economy in his piece for us this week. That's issue 303 of the new European, the one with the China cover. Paul, I started this podcast by saying that this is kind of like a British version of don't look up. It's a, a looming crisis <laughs> that our leaders don't seem to care about and don't seem to have any answers to. Are you surprised by this apathy, this lack of a plan? Well, it's partly to do with the Tory leadership campaign, uh, which has been dragged down the rabbit hole of right wing lunacy uh, by the Tory membership and the Tory press. You know, so the population, if you listen to phone ins, population are just going crazy about cost of living, uh, panicking, you know, that you get these stories of people with Audis turning up at food banks and the rest of it. Uh, but every time, you know, that gets, ex how does that get expressed into the Tory leadership campaign? Uh, well, it doesn't. And all you hear about there is paedophile grooming gangs or more Brexit or um, tax cuts for the rich. So the, the real challenge will be after this summer of almost kind of zombie government, um, whether or not the incoming leadership of the Tory party can rapidly refocus. Um, I'm not sure they can, because the whole crisis is moving faster and at a different kind of order of magnitude uh, than politics normally thinks at, even in a, even in a, if, even if you've got rational politicians, even if you've got technocrats. It's outstripping what Labour can think, let alone what the Tories can think. Uh, respond with 
Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, the, the, the drive for it, as, as you mentioned a couple of weeks ago in your column, you know, some of the drive for it has, has come from Don't Pay UK, hasn't it? Some of the drive has, has come from Martin Lewis, who's done a, an incredible job on this. And it seems to make some kind of U-turn from, from Truss when she does get elected inevitable. I mean, what do you think she would offer and, and will it be nearly enough? Well, let's just situate this um, feeling of discontent that I'm talking about. Incidentally, Martin Lewis is a distant relative of mine. Uh, so we're both kind of, uh, we're both uh, catastrophists on this issue. Um, so yesterday, there were 30 wildcat strikes in Britain. Almost none of them reported, even in the local press, uh, just dedicated people who know things are happening. 30 wildcat strikes, things like a few workers at Amazon refusing to end their lunch break, this kind of thing. So the, the unrest I was talking about in my column in, in TNE a, a couple of weeks ago is definitely there. And it's been driven by the general cost of living crisis. And so, you know, that the, the, thing, the fact is only a few people sit there at the end of every month going, I've spent 70 quid on energy, I've spent 50 quid on booze and tot it all up. Some people do that. Other people just don't. They just rely on looking at their credit cards, their debit card statement at the end of the month to kind of scratch their heads and go, hold on a minute, where did my money go? And so the energy and food costs are starting to eat people's wages. But the way it manifests itself is not really yet that they can't afford energy. It's that they can't afford a pizza or a meal out or uh, to fill their car up. And so the anger and discontent is quite dissipated at the moment but in the winter it won't be because once when that you know the the next energy price rises due at the end of august then another one in october and by then we, we are expecting to be at three and a half grand we've just had another another prediction from a from a one of these energy prediction price prediction companies that by the second quarter of 2023 it could be five grand remember the, the, this price cap system was brought in when it at a grand when Theresa May was worried about fuel poverty. So I think what I'm warning about is, is not that instead of 30 strikes, you get 60 strikes. It's that you get a sudden mood in society of it can't go on. And don't, whether it's don't pay UK, there's a trade union campaign, enough is enough. All of that will meld into something bigger and that's what has got to focus the Tory party's minds. And as a few commentators are saying, however, they don't have much connection with that world. You know, the world of, the world of say, the Tory party in, in Lee, where I come from, which is where Truss uh, went last night for a, a hustings, is, is full of people who care more about Brexit and immigration than they care about anything else. Mm. That doesn't represent the local population, by the way, even those who voted Tory. It represents these ultra-ideological right-wingers uh, who've populated the Conservative Party in Northern England. And it's all been dragged down that route. So, you know, what you're looking for is uh, is some leadership, above all, on the energy situation. And you're not, I would argue, you're not getting it at the moment from either party. Yes, I think that's absolutely correct. And you also say correctly in the piece this week that, um, you know, the, the reason that nobody has the answers is because they're, they're working with an, an economic model that is completely broken. Has it been broken by Ukraine and, and COVID mainly? And then, and then so naturally, 
you know, the natural order of things will will return? <laughs> or is it broken irretrievably? I think that the so-called free market or neoliberal model of capitalism was broken in 2008. Mm. It's been kept alive by central banks printing money and states and households and companies accumulating debt. Uh, every, it, we're living on on life support in terms of uh, you know, in terms of what generates growth is borrowing and money creation. It isn't ingenuity. It isn't productivity. That's been the general problem since 2008. Now, it's one thing to keep uh, the economy on life support with quantitative easing and borrowing, but you can't keep an ideology on life support. You can't keep people people. You cannot keep people's brains accepting the idea that everything is normal. Everything will go back to normal. It is just a blip. They're realizing. Um, that you know, an entire generation has grown up without without wage progression. Um, pe- millions of people now in the UK are living in highly insecure and overpriced rented accommodation, and they just there's a kind of no future situation mm-hmm. uh, arising. I think for me, however, what makes this the energy component of the cost of living crisis the strategic one is that this is not just an economic event. I argue in the piece that it is a an act of war by Vladimir Putin and his generals and his strategists specialize in something they call new generation warfare. We call it hybrid warfare. And that is the, the softening of preparation and weakening of enemy countries, and they do think of us as an enemy, through propaganda and through destabilization. And what Putin wants is to destabilize Britain uh, through um, through mass unrest over over energy, um, and I, for me, what I'm trying to almost grab politicians by le- their metaphorical lapels and shake them uh, into understanding is we are at war with Putin over energy, and if you accept that, the idea of oh well we can't do anything about the the oil majors, they're internationally listed companies, and we can't do anything about Centrica and you know the. Uh, the eon and the other gas suppliers because you know they were only privatized a few a few decades ago you wouldn't think that if you were in a shooting war you'd think what assets do we have how do we stop them being destabilized how do we use them for the good of people and the assets that we have particularly in gas are considerable we import half our gas but that means the other half of our gas comes from the north sea and it is the property of the of united kingdom and of course, the companies have the licenses, and those big companies are making billions extra, mm. not because the costs to them have gone up, apart from maybe some higher wages and some higher transportation costs. The cost of getting a cubic litre of gas out of the North Sea hasn't gone up by four times or five times. It's gone up a bit. And but the global price has gone up, and so they're free riding on the on the massive inflation of the global price. For me, I'm just looking for solutions. It, Gordon Brown's solution of part nationalization of the downstream companies might be something we could look at. But I just think we, we, you know, we might have to think about taking not so much ownership as control over the UK assets of the, of the oil and gas giants and saying to them, for a time, you need, and we together with you, the government, need to control the wholesale price and bring it down. Um, the alternative to that is taxing them to the hilt, windfall taxes. But it, it seems to me like a sort of overcomplicated way of doing things. You, we, could, we, could, we could take a golden share in, in, 
in the big companies that own the North Sea uh, uh, exploitation rights. And we should and we could say to them, for a couple of years, you're going to take much, much less profit. You're going to sell much below the global wholesale price of gas and oil, and you're going to sell to a, a, a government-owned retail sector that will then do its massive, its best to bring down the price to the consumer. I mean, yes, it's radical, but wait till you see what five grand, uh, five grand a year energy uh, bills look like to before you judge whether it's too radical. Yeah, I mean that is probably the most radical step that you you're proposing in this piece this week, isn't it? Um, uh, and as you, but you know, as you say, trying to negotiate with a layer cake of private interests to maintain energy security uh, and tackle uh, decarbonisation is a fool's errand, and I think that's absolutely yeah. Think, that, but, yeah and, and I think that's right, Steve. I think we just have to say it's not a normal economic crisis. It's a mixture of the need to rapid, rapidly decarbonize, the need to secure the energy supply, so make sure the lights don't go off. And incidentally, we've now seen that the government is officially planning for blackouts, and and we've got to keep energy affordable so that so that social consent to be governed doesn't just suddenly collapse. And I don't think anybody in politics is allowing them. They're not daring to think in these big uh, terms. They're compartmentalizing the problems of Ukraine, of inflation, of of green energy. Uh, and so, yeah, some of the other things that, that I've been arguing, are, of course, you can attack it from both ends. Of course, you can have price caps. Price caps would be important or price freezes. I would I would certainly think about doing that. I would think about what the TUC calls a social tariff. So a special price cap on the poorest household, make, make, meaning they couldn't pay more than, say, 5% of their income for energy. So we'd subsidize their energy bills more than everybody else's. Um, universal basic services. Uh, I was in Vienna earlier this year, and, and I was stunned to find out, because it's the most livable city in the world, uh, and stunned to find out that despite being full of relatively well-off people, it is a, basically, you cannot pay more than a one euro a day for public transport. You buy a, a yearly ticket, 365 euros, less for pensioners, and you can go anywhere in the city on any mode of transport for that for that money. Stuff like that needs we need, we'd need to raise taxes, redistribute wealth, and and but the universal basic services um, like that are great ways of helping everybody survive a period of double-digit inflation, and and to create the social solidarity around it. Because as soon as you start means testing uh, stuff like energy bills or public transport access, what you always get is is a kind of well, I'm not paying for that. You know, it's, it, 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 it's divisive. I am a philosophically a universalist and think that we should that the left and the progressive half of UK society should try and maintain as much as possible of what we do in welfare as as universally available. Yes, I mean some of this is some of this is is kind of labour a labour idea, isn't it? And and I know the the Welsh government have given. Uh, free school, they've extended free school meals to everybody, haven't they? To all all children. Um, you're right in in this piece that, that you know Rachel Reeves has said that, that providing some universal basic services could be paid for by closing uh, tax loopholes. Um, are you surprised by how, how quiet Labour have been about this issue so far? Well, um, I am disappointed 
but but what I'm more disappointed in is the fact that they keep ruling out nationalisation, um, because I I don't want energy nationalisation on kind of nice to have ideological grounds. Mm. You know, for example, when na- rail will carry on rolling and you know go, and going bust and being taken slowly back into public ownership if it's just left alone. Um, water will carry the water companies will carry on pumping effluent into our rivers and seas. Uh, you know. But, but but and that's a ter- terrible thing to do. But energy is critical to everything. Energy is crit- critical to national security. And I just don't understand why Labour hasn't been able, especially as you've got somebody like Gordon Brown, who, mm. let's face it, is not one of the most left wing people on earth, um, realising that maybe temporary nationalisation is the only way forward for the energy retail companies to be able to allow allow us the civil society to mandate certain prices for them so it's it's i understand i mean i, I think that late by the time this podcast goes out labor will have started some announcements about palliative measures that they would do i think they've been trying remember the goalposts keep moving the three and a half grand prediction became four thousand two hundred only this week and already before the end of the week we've got a five grand prediction we've got Schultz in Germany, you know, beginning to ask companies to, you know, to ration uh, fossil energy. We've got the Rhine and the Loire running dry. Mm-hmm. And what so what this means is that the coal barges on which a lot of European energy relies uh, can't get through. You've got the French nuclear power plants shutting down because they can't get enough cold water to cool them. These are amazing, dramatic secondary <laughs> feedback effects of climate and what what you know i I can live with keir starmer being on his holidays i can live with labor taking a couple of weeks to get their heads around the severity and the pace of change but what i can't live with is the ideological refusal to to face the fact that we are in a triple crisis of climate of energy security and of affordability and that you just need you've got to throw away the old left v right playbook here I, I i think you know when i write these columns in the tne i mean i do so in the vague hope that, that conservatives and liberals and scottish nationalists might also be reading them um and uh, even some europeans might also be reading them that that is the aim surely for, for for any progressive politics is to shift shift the framing permanently around these issues so that all sides of politics can can adapt um, I think we could have Tory nationalisations. Um, we, 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 Tories were certainly talking about taking golden shares in defence companies l- yeah. less than a year ago. Um, the idea of a fairly costless golden share that gives government some control over parts of the energy system seems to me like something that I don't see why a sensible Tory, even a kind of hardline Brexiteer, would 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 have a problem with, particularly because golden shares were declared unlawful by the European Union and uh, they're no lawful uh, so you can do them yes I mean the, the Bank of England you touch on in this piece the bank the Bank of England's approach to to managing inflation has clearly failed what what happens what happens with the Bank of England now is it does it remain politically independent? Is does its remit change? What, what's what's the solution? It's never been politically independent. Remember, its remit is set politically. Well, yes. and you know, for years when it undershot the inflation target, um, 
the, the, the Tory politicians uh, just sat back and said, oh, well, not, not much we can do about that. You, you didn't require the bank to do any more stimulus of the economy when we're in, in, in that period of, of, uh, of stagnation in the last decade. Um, I think, I think look, for a long time, we on the left have argued that the bank should have a more complex remit. And that if you gave it a remit for sustainable growth and redistribution or reducing inequality or limiting inequality, then to, to the, when, when I speak to, to, to central bankers, including the, the UK's Bank of England, um, what they generally say to you is, look, the government gives us the homework, we do the homework, the government marks the homework. That's a phrase they, they use in it, at the Bank of England. That is, we don't set the homework, we don't mark the homework, we just do the homework. We, we try to follow the remit that you have given us. Now, I think a single target of 2% inflation at a time when you've got double-digit inflation is making the bank hike interest rates in a destructive manner uh, that's not likely to bear down on inflation. It's in addition, and this is not in their remit, but it's something because they're being ideological uh, and elitist that they, have, that they have begun to do. They have become the biggest spokespeople uh, for for wage restraint, when they know full well wages are not driving inflation. So they're basically banks arguing the working class, the workforce, must pay the price of the inflation crisis, not the profits of big companies. That must They must stay the same. Shareholder distribution of dividends must stay the same. That's the implication of what they're saying. So I would like to see their remit changed. And I don't see, I mean, there's an argument that says, that says in a way, the bank, the Bank of England is already politicised because it's because it it refused it's refused to accept that so much of the problems, so many of the problems it faces arise from Brexit. There was a there was a a Bank of America uh, analyst note put out a couple of months ago that said Britain's sterling, Britain's currency is beginning to take on features of what they call an emerging market currency like Turkey's lira because it's being Bank, central banking is already politicized. It's not just what you say, it's what you refuse to say. So they refuse to say that Brexit's a factor in the collapse of sterling and the rise in inflation, in the absolutely devastatingly low growth of the UK uh, post-COVID, and above all of trade. Because you can't accept that, you're left just backing government arguments about, oh, it must be workers, or it must be... Um, you, you remember, Remember just one thing. Liz Truss is part of that generation of Tory, uh, young, bright young things, tw- twelve years ago, who said Britain's biggest problem was lazy workers. Yes, and so you know, it's the bank should have its remit changed—a sophisticated remit that says you boost green growth and you 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 restrain inequality alongside restraining inflation. It's not like the difference between maths and further maths. This is not, you know, it's a slightly more complicated piece of algebra, but it could be done. And I'm glad in a way Trust has had a go at the bank uh, because it, 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 it's, it, opens a, it opens the door for a debate about a new remit for the bank that I think is just sorely needed. It's clear, I mean, it can't, I just think of Bank of England, like it's like trying to drive a car with knitting needles. And it's, you know, like you, you've just got two knitting needles that barely touch the wheel and you can you can so you, if you, you can just about move it left or right, but it's 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 a that kind of hands off instrument. Yes. Whereas, 
and, and when you watch them do it, that's how they're trying to do it. They go, oh, okay, if we if we tweak interest rates by half a percent, you know, move the knitting needle by, by a quarter of an inch this way, then in three years' time, it might have this effect, and therefore we've met our remit. It's just, uh, it's not economic management. And I come back to it. If this, if this, re- if there were bombs landing on Britain instead instead of five times, uh, you know, five hundred percent inflation of, of, of the energy price, no one would be even having the debate about should we take control of our monetary policy politically. You would do it. You would take control of production of monetary policy. Um, I, this is why I'm constantly wanting to drag the framing of this crisis into the geopolitical world, and because I know because my contact with them, politicians on on both sides of politics except for a few, uh, who uh, largely refuse that framework. They don't want to believe that there is a malign totalitarian dictatorship who wants to destroy us. They want to believe that life can go on as normal and that the old arguments between Labour and Tory can just be rehearsed over and over again. And maybe a lot of, uh, of our listeners would like that to be the case, but I'm determined to convince people before Putin does it the hard way that th- those days are over. Yes, I think sadly they are over, or maybe not. Uh, maybe not that sadly. I mean, there are so many ideas in this piece that we've not really, we've not even touched on yet. Um, benefits and pay. You're talking about a windfall tax, a sort of windfall tax, but not on energy companies, on tech companies. It's all in the piece, which is in issue three hundred three of the of the new European with the the China cover, uh, and it's online. Uh, it's online too. It's a superb piece. I, I wanted to just close because I, I, I don't want to keep you too long. But to, what do you think happens to Britain without this radical action? Without a you know a really bold offer from Truss, which I, I, I do. <laughs> Is okay, capable of, of 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 coming when you, when you combine all this with wage stagnation and the discontent in the labour market that you've talked about, and trust you know threatening to ban strikes virtually you know all together, isn't she? It, it does feel Don't, like something is coming. Yeah. yeah, what I think is coming is is um, a wave of public sector strikes. So council workers are being balloted now. Uh, you, you'll workers. Skilled workers, see, whatever people think about the RMT and whatever, you know, the, the ultimate power of skilled workers arises from the fact that there aren't enough of them. You know, for example, Boris Johnson said he was going to build a nuclear power station every 12 months. The one that we've we tried to build um, is, is, uh, is not complete 12 years after it, could, it received planning permission. And the unions who work on that job say, we just can't find enough workers to do one. We're going to find workers to do one a year, and and so if you happen to be working on a nuclear site or in a in a in a dock, or in, even though in an Amazon warehouse, what you know is that on, on the notice board there's a bloody big sign saying, "Please find people, that, please you know, please find more workers." Mm. And so there'll be the industrial aspect of the discontent is becoming more atomized because so few people are actually recommended. Uh, uh, recognized by represented rather by unions but the social aspect is very volatile and i think that what the thing that i keep coming back to uh, and it goes back to the previous column i wrote is that is that the the you know the, the there's a chant it got dum 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 then it's mm, the tories <laughs> this is that chant is becoming really viral 
it starts started out around a folk singer called Jamie Webster. It, other other singers at recent summer festivals have been doing it. Webster himself did it at Glastonbury. You you're seeing Celtic fans do it. I think Liverpool fans have been doing it. You, but what it is is that that doesn't that's not necessarily a it is a left wing critique. What it expresses far more is a the, the new lifestyle of working class people. The 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 kind of you know the rough and readiness of being young and working class and having to drink cans and sort of sit on park benches and you know I'm, I'm where i'm on holiday right now is a part of wales where it's quite clear to me on the beach there's a lot of working class people who for whom this is their their one holiday of the summer and they have a devil may care let me put it that way attitude to authority to posh people to you know people driving suvs and motorboats onto the beach but it's it's a there is a strong plebeian radicalism in Britain that doesn't have to be harnessed to socialism or labourism in order to become very effective. If it ever breaks out, it will become something far more like the Gilets Jaunes protest against Macron in France. And you know what my big fear is, is that that Johnson doesn't sit back on the Tory backbenches. For example, if Sunak were to take over, and that's not impossible, you might see Johnson go, oh, well, OK, right. Now you're going to see the populist Boris Johnson. Now I'm going to go out to the country and say all the things that was held back from saying by being prime minister. Uh, Rhys Mogg, that he Dorries, you know, these politicians of the lowest possible calibre would flock to him. And um, and you could easily end up with a repeat of the BXP. Uh, you you know, the Brexit sorted. So what do we want to do now? We want to sort something else. Uh, what is it? Uh, you know, so that's why I'm I'm really pleading with my Labour colleagues. And, you know, as you know, I'm kind of putatively trying to get in to Parliament myself, uh, trying to get selected as a Labour candidate. I'm trying to say, look, we need a different kind of left politics that looks beyond those years of Corbynism and takes seriously the fact that we're in a global geopolitical crisis, a massive crisis of direction of democracy, and people are just crying out for someone to represent them. Um, and that's what I hope Labour will start doing. But, you know, it's so timid and so hidebound by um, having to kowtow to what a few, you know, a few hundred thousand people in the red wall seats believe. Um, and that's a real problem for them. It is. I accept that's a real problem. Meanwhile, the rest of the country is just saying, well, who's going to represent our values and beliefs? Well. It'll be you and Martin Lewis, I think. That'll be very funny. <laughs> right, I will let you return to your holiday. Thank you so much, <laughs> Paul Mason, to read Paul's Six Ways to Stop the Crash and to get full access to his archive of superb pieces for The New European. You can join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Paul Mason there. Before we go to the Hall of Shame, a reminder of another brilliant podcast from the New European. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again, but nobody came to help them. 
by morning they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died, men, women and a young child, but their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. Then the story faded away, to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. The new European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane? The whole series of The 27 is now available to stream or to download in the same new European feed where you found this episode and our regular reminder that Series 1 and 2 of Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcasts are also available, telling the life stories of amazing Europeans in 10-minute bites. Uh, You can find that by searching for Great European Lives podcast. So finally, it's time for the Hall of Shame, where we put blowhard backbenchers, malevolent ministers, putrid pundits, things that get my goat generally. Uh, Zach Goldsmith is in the Hall of Shame. He's one cheek of the arse. That is the campaign against the Parliamentary Committee investigating whether Boris Johnson misled the Commons over Partygate. Nadine Doris is the other cheek of that arse, of course. Uh, The left cheek, Zach Goldsmith, wrote this week, the Partygate probe is clearly rigged it is an obscene abuse of power Uh, and do you know what my idea of an obscene abuse of power is it is Zach Goldsmith losing his seat at the 2019 general election quite rightly after leading an abysmal dog whistle campaign against uh, Sadiq Khan and then being made a baron by his old chum Boris Johnson so he could keep his ministerial job uh, in which he then got a promotion Grant Shapps is in the Hall of Shame for his Brexit bonus plan. Brexit bonus, that sounds great, doesn't it? Uh, What is it? Um, It is the idea to allow motorists to uh, drive HGVs without extra tests. Uh, Grant Shapps says that doing this will help solve driver shortages. It is great stuff. And listen... I have just got a new set of steak knives. I've got a box set of casualty DVDs, and I'm a big fan of the uh, board game operation. Um, So please, Grant, can you let me know when the Brexit bonus plan expands? So let me do a couple of quick surgeries. Uh, I live quite near uh, Norwich Hospital. Uh, I can't do weekends, though, or evenings when I had a bit of a drink. Uh, Liz Truss is, of course, in the Hall of Shame. Uh, On the campaign trail this week, she said of herself, the thing about me is that you see uh, what you get. What you see is what you get. Uh, And uh, what I see is a vacuous bend in the wind politician who'll sign up uh, to the worst nonsense from the worst people in order to further a career. And that's what we're going to get. Have you noticed, by the way, that Liz Truss, when she's speaking a bit slower and she seems to have a bit of a deeper voice now, and, of course... Who did that trick first? That was Liz Truss's great hero, uh, Margaret Thatcher. But who does Liz Truss now sound like? She actually sounds like Anne Widdicombe. Try it out. Just listen to Anne Widdicombe and then listen to the new Liz Truss, the less squeaky Liz Truss. She says she's beginning to sound like Anne Widdicombe. 
uh, a chilling thought there. And of course, Anne Widdicombe is in the Hall of Shame. Of course she is. Anne Widdicombe writes in the Daily Express this week. What's well, an amazing thing, isn't it? Anne Widdicombe, the world's worst column in the world's worst newspaper. She writes in the Daily Express this week uh, that queues at airports are nothing to do with Brexit. Inflation is nothing to do with the government. Uh, and she says this, we should thank God that we do not live in Ukraine and stop moaning about our much lesser problems. And I mean, I would thank God if Anne Widdicombe uh, did live in Ukraine or, or just somewhere uh, far, far away from me um but foremost in the hall of shame this week is another another deep thinker it's a member of the public actually uh it's a guy i won't give you his full name uh but i uh, found his post on facebook his his first name is dave uh and he posted on facebook this week uh what i think is the most interesting take uh on the tory leadership election that i have yet seen it it was all in capital letters uh so i'll 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 give you a sense of it here uh and it goes like this. Rishi Davos, shape-shifting, woke, dead husk of a lizard, full-blown, Bull Gates fan, wants us all broke, eating insect patties. Now nah, piss off, you weird jet-setting private jetter. You don't give a ship about us. Dave from Facebook there, uh, having a completely normal one. Uh, but then these are completely normal times. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening and thanks to our producer, Eleanor Longman-Mood. A reminder of our special offer for new subscribers, if you go to theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of a pound a week for digital or two pounds a week for print and digital. That is theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European Podcast, please subscribe. And please give us nice ratings and lovely reviews. Go on. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow us on Twitter at The New European. If you like, you can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until the next time that we meet, so long, snowflakes. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.